Genesis chapter 15. And we're just going to go all the way through 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other, over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, of the, to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would show up and that you would change us by your word. Yet even that is a miracle. You have to show up, God. You have to open up your word to us so that we can hear it, so that we can be changed by it, so that we can delight in it. And so that's exactly what we pray for, God. Would you do that? And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. Um, One Saturday evening, I had the scariest night of my existence so far. Uh, Leah and I got the chance to babysit for uh, Chris and Brandy Moore. Um, And we got to watch little Penelope and Simon. Um, And this was before Noah was even here. Um, But this was no ordinary babysitting um, because we got to stay the night with them. Um, And we were going to bring them to church, bring them to church the next day. And it was going to be like they were going to pick them up from there. But little Penelope, she was a, a little afraid of the dark. So every little sound or movement outside Um, She would pull up her blanket a little closer to her face and hide behind it. Um, And I'd go to the window and I'd say, oh, you know, it was just the wind or an airplane passed by the window. You know, just something that she couldn't verify that I was like, I don't know what's happening. But um, (laughs) 
and Simon couldn't speak yet, so I was like, oh, he's probably good. Um, but Penelope kept asking me if I could go to the door or the window and check on a sound. Um, she was like, can you go to the door, the back door, the other window, and, and these different things to, can you go check? Um, so I did. But later that night, we were able to get the kids to sleep, and it got so quiet in that house. We were living in an apartment at the time um, where, you know, we're used to parties and people stomping and, um, and car alarms, all sorts of stuff. And we were babysitting for Chris and Brandy when they were living in Forney, kind of on the outskirts. And so it's kind of the country, um, no sound whatsoever, except for uh, Simon's baby monitor. Um, before Chris and Brandy left that day, they forgot to mention to us that you can turn that thing down. So it was just picking up like these smallest sounds and just amplifying them across the room like a war zone. Um, and so, you know, just the smallest little sounds throughout it would be like, oh my gosh, what is that? And it was just like him breathing. Um, but so we're laying there in bed. It's probably about 3 a.m. Um, and Leah wakes me up and, and she's like, Jake, can you go and check the doors and the windows and the, like pretty much everything Penelope was asking me. Um, but she, it, she wakes me up at one point. She says, Jake, Jake, Jake. And it, I woke up and, and she said, I can hear something moving in the house. And I was like, I'm listening, and I can hear it too. And I was like, oh my gosh. And like just sitting there paralyzed in fear. And then the door, I see the door handle kind of turn, and it starts to open. I'm like, what? What in the world? It was Penelope. I, uh, I pulled my, my covers up close to my face, and I was like, ah! Um, <laughs> the scariest night of my existence so far. Um, little Penelope. Uh, but I, I tell you that story uh, because I think that we are a lot like Penelope and Leah and myself um, in that we, we want confidence. We want to know. <clears throat> we want confidence in God's promises. We want absolute confidence that God is not going to give up on us, that he will bring us home, that he really will save us, that he really is always there. Because we get constantly bombarded every single day with circumstances and issues and problems and pain that really just leaves us crumpled up. Maybe things seem to just be going wrong. Our house is falling apart. Our marriage seems like it's in a rut. That blood clot came back. Our job is iffy. Or maybe we have been entrapped by a deep-seated sin that feels uncontrollable and we just aren't really sure that God loves us or that he will want to bring us home. I mean, we wouldn't want to bring us home. Or maybe we just have a deep longing to be in a place where we will no longer be the outcast or the oddball, a place where we will have a friend in Jesus forever. Or maybe you and I are just tired and we just want to go home. I think that all of us in many points of our lives will end up in places like these where we are scared and worried and doubting because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And if we're honest, it leaves us asking the question that Abram asks in verse 8. How do I know? How can I have confidence in your promises to me, God? God, I know that you deal out salvation and steadfast love and kindness, and I know verses that say I need only to be still and let you do the fighting, and um, I know about your grace. Like, I can read my Bible, and I see you move in, in other people's lives around me, and I sometimes have a really good feeling about my eternity, but how do I know on those hard days? How do I know? I want to know for sure that I'm going there because I would hate to go through all of this suffering that the earth has to offer only to spend the rest of my eternity 
where there is nothing but that continual suffering and torment. So how do I know? How do we know? Well, God has given us Genesis 15 for this exact situation. We can know for certain from this chapter. um, We'll see that we are to have confidence in our eternal status in three ways. We fear not. We believe. And we see God prove it. We fear not. We stand in the middle of the hurricane of suffering and pain. And we do so without any fear because of God. We believe God when he speaks to us about his promises and we see God prove it because he will prove to you and I exactly why we should have so much confidence. So let's just take a look at the first one. Look at verse one. After these things, just pause. What things? After these things. Um, It's pretty much just all of the suffering and strife of the Um, and the pressure of the last four chapters. So just a quick recap. God brings Abram into a land where a severe famine hits. He and Lot get into it, and then Lot, his only rightful heir at this point, leaves him. And then we saw last week with Travis that faith means that we're just in a war. We are in a fight. For Abram, he's literally warring and dueling with nations and armies, and he's leaving Sodom um, with Lot after Lot got himself into trouble. And Abram and all of his people are potentially in the position of of having fierce retaliation against them. This is a scary place to be. And this is where we pick up. After these things, in this scary place, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram. God just gets straight to it. He just says, fear not, why? Why? Because Abram is scared. He's in a scary place under scary circumstances. And so God graciously comes to him and gets under the circumstances to the heart of the issue and says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Literally what he says is, I am your defender. Abram, I know that it might look scary from your perspective. You're surrounded by all of these huge nations that can easily attack you. You dwell in tents, but... Do not be afraid because the defense that you need from an attack, that's me. I will be that for you. And not only that, not only does God take away the need for Abram to fear, he again reminds Abram of his promise to bless him. He says, your your reward shall be very great. And remember, this is God's, God's essentially saying, remember, I haven't blessed you with your offspring yet, so of course I'm going to keep you alive. You think I'll let you go without... Um, doing what I need to do first, you literally have no reason to fear at all. But the truth is, you and I are going to face scary, impending disasters and fights and craziness and cancer and death, and we will sit on the floor in tears because of what could happen. We are scared and we'll freak out, and reasonably so. Some of that stuff is scary. We will have issues. But God today is reaching into our story to say, fear not. A few hundred years later, after this, God's people are trapped in slavery um, over at Egypt again. And I love this story because it's so encouraging to see how quickly they want to turn from God. Um, They're in the middle of what is some of the worst slavery ever described in history. And God tells Moses that he will use Moses' mouth and leadership to lead his people out of Egypt. Um, And it's great because Moses keeps saying, like, don't send me. I can't do this. I'm not good at this. Like, don't send me. Um, And God says, I'm going to do this through you. Like, you're not getting it. Um, You have no reason to be afraid. Literally, all you have to do is stand there. I'm going to do the work. Um, 
And then so God has to speak to his people through Moses in a huge way later uh, because when the Israelites are led by Moses out of slavery and into the wilderness, they're complaining and grumbling and they say, Moses, did you lead us out here to die? Like were the Egyptian graves not good enough for you? They're terrified and rightfully so because they're being trailed by the Egyptian army and they're being cornered in by the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. They're scared. And then in Exodus 14, we see God speak through Moses to calm their fears. And Moses said to the people, this is God speaking, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. When you and I come to a moment like this, when we are backed up to the ropes, when the cards are stacked against us, when we are terrified because of the situation that we are in, which is going to happen and will happen, we fear not. We stand firm. And we see God fight for us. We will have suffering. We will have famine. We will lose friends. We are in war and we will always be at war, not only with the enemy that we cannot see, but with our flesh that is deceptive and lying and confusing. Um, We're at war. But just like Travis said last week, we are in a war that is already won. So what do we do? We fear not. We stand firm. We see the salvation of the Lord. We see God work. We see God fight for us. A sweet friend of mine reminded me of this psalm this week, uh, and it goes back and forth between the psalmist speaking and God speaking, and it starts with the psalmist in Psalm 91. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And then God speaks. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We fear not because we have a God like this. So what about you? Where's fear dominating you right now? Which of these verses can you take with you to battle? When life brings war and terrible things and scary things, we fear not, but we cannot actually get to that point without our next point. 
which is believe. Take a look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And you kind of love the guy's honesty. Uh, like he just bears himself before God and, and tells God all about his frustration with God. Um, like he has enough faith to doubt and go to God with questions and concerns. And he goes to God and says, yeah, God, I, I get what you're saying about my reward and all. Like I, I understand that, but still don't have a baby. I'm old, getting close to 100. Sarai's also old. Won't say how old. Um, the heir of my house is this one guy who I picked up from Damascus, who I brought into my family. I don't, we're not blood at all. What are you going to give me? In verse 4. And behold, in an answer, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, talking about Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God just dropped more language on Abram to help him see the promise fresh yet again. God is telling him, look, I've, I've promised you offspring as numerous as the dust, the sand, and now the stars. Literally everything you look at that you cannot count, that's what you can think of when I promise you your offspring. Abram's in the middle of his doubts and he questions God and his promises and he goes to God and God comes back and says, I'm going to fulfill this promise. And what's Abram's response? Look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord. God shows up in Abram's doubting and unbelief of God's promises to remind Abram of just who exactly promised the promise, the God of the universe. This, the one who is in charge of everything. And so in light of remembering this, in light of remembering that God is his shield and that he has no reason to fear the promise not being fulfilled, Abram believes. And this is faith. Faith in God is not knowing all the answers. God literally tells Abram nothing. He says, uh, go. Abram says, where? He's like, I'll tell you later. God says, I'll give you a son. And Abram says, when? He's like, I'll tell you later. In spite of the current worldly, scary situation going on, Abram believes in God because of only one reason, who God is. And this has to be true because God gives him nothing else to go on other than here's the promise and I'm the one who promised it. And this was enough for Abram to believe. Faith will never mean that we have all the answers or the vision or the plan or the details. Faith means that our lives are in the hands of a loving and gracious being who has our joy and good in his thoughts at all times, and so we'll be all right. We believe because of who God is, not what he can do for us. The interesting thing about this, though, is the word uh, for believed, when it says, and he believed the Lord, um, is literally translated as wearing. So it's as though Abram like put on the belief as a garment, um, which makes zero sense until you read the rest of the verse. And he, that being God, counted it to him as righteousness. So what does this mean? It means, first of all, that God has to grant righteousness to a person. It does not come from within them. It does not come from the person. Um, and it comes in the moment when Abram wears it. 
Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The moment we believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord and we turn from our sin, we move from wearing one belief to another, a better belief. And that belief is characterized by what clothes God gives us. So we either sew together some fig leaves like Adam and Eve, or we are clothed in the garments of salvation that only God gives. Uh, in an honestly, like just an odd story, God comes to a man named Zechariah um, as an angel. So already a little odd, and then he starts showing him visions. Don't know how that would play out today, but um, in the third chapter of Zechariah, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. When you and I come to God for the very first time, we are clothed in the filthy rags of our sins. But God steps in and says, No, this is one of my children. Clothe him in righteousness. And all this happens in a moment of belief. Faith is not by merit. We cannot earn it. Instead, it is our readiness to accept what God has already promised. When we stand before God at the end of our lives, we will either be standing clothed in the rags of whatever we can muster up, which is actually worse than nothing, or we will be clothed by God in the righteousness of Jesus, and we will stand spotless and covered by those robes. Only one of these will be true. Which one is true for you? And lastly, probably the most amazing part, we just see God prove it. Uh, look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You've got to love Abram again. Like, I'm, I'm so thankful that I get to see just this man struggle. He just believed, and then he doubted <laughs> again. Uh, like, he's essentially kind of like the father of faith. Like, God starts with this man, um, and we're actually, like, we're going through a, a series focusing on Abram's faith. Um, so it's funny that he's doubting. Um, he just doubted four verses ago, believed God two verses ago, and now he doubts again. Unbelief comes readily and quickly. We get that. Um, Abram's like... You know, I, I get it that it's all out there in your promise, but how am I to know? God answers Abram in one of the most, well, no, sorry. God doesn't get angry like, a, like Zeus or anything like, oh, who are you to question me? Um, he just says, I'll show you. So God answers Abram in one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. 
He makes a covenant with Abram. Abram is reasonably worried about this promise not coming to bear because he doesn't have a son yet. So God makes a covenant with Abram to show him just how serious he is about fulfilling this promise. In verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. What's he doing? Like, that's kind of odd. Um, this was actually custom in the day for making a covenant between two people. They would gather up these things for the covenant, and it sounds odd to us, but Abram doesn't hesitate. Um, he knows what's about to happen, because in verse 10, he just went, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So it, it sounds a little odd, but Abram's like, yeah, I know what this is. This is a covenant. Uh, this is a covenantal process. Um, but for us, just think of a marriage um, during engagement or dating, the other person can legally and biblically still leave. Um, so in order to answer this question of how am I to know that you'll keep your promise, how am I to know that you're going to stay, the two parties sign a covenantal document to say, you want to know? I'll sign. Um, but God didn't have a document to sign. Um, the culture at this time was a little more storytelling in nature. So what they would do is they would act out the promise. So they would set up these, these uh, animals split in half. <clears throat> and when they, when they split the animals, it says, if I do not do everything I am promising to do, then may my flesh be destroyed and be, be as food for the beast. Let what happens to these animals be done to me if I break my promise. Ever see that at a wedding? <laughs> I think that'd be cool. <laughs> um, verse 11. <clears throat> And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So he's just simply protecting the, the document at this point, not letting it get bent or coffee stained. Um, and as the sun, verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now let's just get this out there. That's hard to understand. Like that's, that's a kind of difficult passage. It's, it's a little odd. But this is just described as the terror of the Lord. If God is who he says he is, he must have terror and fear-inducing qualities about him. God is, is scary. It's like being in the cage with a lion who loves you. You know he loves you, but it's still a lion. <clears throat> um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Susan and Lucy, they, they ask about the lion, Aslan. Um, they say, like, is he safe? And Beaver, he answers with the most memorable line, I feel like. He says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God presses Abram down to the ground in thick darkness, where he then speaks to him about dark things. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. They will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, or slaves, and they will be afflicted, tortured, beaten for 400 years. But this darkness is only for a time. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All this is, 
is God bringing his side of the covenant to the table. These are his vows to Abram, if you will. I will do exactly as I promise, and in covenantal fashion, uh, God passes through the pieces. Look at 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. So this is just more imagery of the terror and perfection and holiness of the Lord. These are some of the same words used to describe God's presence on Mount Sinai um, and the pillars of God's presence in the wilderness. It was sometimes smoke, sometimes fire, but it was always severe, like trying to stare directly into lightning. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God just signed his end of the covenant. I not only promise to bless you, I promise to be cut up like these animals. I promise to die if I do not bless you. And then in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Did you see that? The ceremony's over. But Abram didn't make the promise. Abram never passed through the pieces. What God is saying is, I have promised to bless you, Abram. I've promised to be your God and to bring salvation to the world through your offspring. And if I do not do what I say, may I be cut to pieces. May all that I am be finished. May I suffer death if I do not do what I say I will do. And this is already in itself amazing, but he keeps going. He never calls Abram to pass through. And historically, this never happened. Um, When a king would conquer a lesser king, and when they would make a covenant, or if a king was making a covenant with a, uh, <clears throat> with a slave or anything, either they would both pass through, or just the lesser being, the slave or the king who was conquered. Um, but God says, Abram, I'm going to go through for the both of us. It is not a partnership. It is not a two-person covenant. God is saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise, I'll be torn to pieces if you don't. And he was. Centuries later, darkness came down again. God, in the form of Jesus Christ, was torn to pieces. The darkness fell upon only Jesus. Why? He was taking the covenant curse. God was taking the covenant curse, the one that was meant for the party that did not uphold their end of the promise, the curse that was meant for a sinful Abram, a sinful Abram's people, a curse that was meant for you and for me. We were not able to uphold our end of the covenant, so God did it for us. We could not take that curse. And this is the good news of the gospel. There is no picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. There is no God helps those who help themselves. This is no partnership. This is not a cooperative effort. God made the covenant and then fulfilled the covenant promise, and he was the one who took on the curse. 
And this is good news because sometimes we don't even know how to trust God. We are just like Abram reaching out to say, how do I know? All of, all of our lives' problems stem from this very issue. When we are worried, we do not trust God's wisdom. When we are angry and bitter, we do not trust God's justice. When we hate ourselves, it's because we do not trust his love and his grace. When we disobey ever, when we, when we disobey ever, we do not trust God. Our lack of self-control, our lack of self-esteem, whatever it is, our anchor is in the water and we are floating away into more and more sin. We have nothing to hold on to. But faith actually begins over and over and over again with the faithful question of how do I know? I believe God, but help my unbelief. Our faith begins with us admitting to God that we do not trust him and that all we have to do is, is look at any number, of, any number of our actions to see that that is true. But God will act with grace toward us in this because there is no covenantal curse that will fall upon you anymore in Jesus. How can you and I know? How can we walk out of these doors absolutely sure of our salvation? How can we know without any shadow of a doubt? How can we know for certain? We look to Jesus. We root ourselves down deeper into that faith in Jesus. We cry out in unbelief and just genuine reality and we see God answer. We look to Jesus. May we never forget the truth of Genesis 15. May we always come back to this for proof of God's promise-fulfilling character to be absolutely certain of what is to come. It is absolutely not up to us. God made sure of that. In light of this, when life crumples us, we fear not, we believe and we see God prove it. We fear not. We remember our shield in this fight, our defender. We believe, again, even though we have no answers or vision or anything about what is to come, and we doubt, and we come to this book to see <clears throat> God prove all that he has promised come absolutely true because it is up to Jesus and his work. At the end of the covenant that was supposed to be upheld by us, was upheld by Jesus for us. So uh, we're going to take communion to celebrate this truth together. And we're going to see that even this is a picture of what God did here in Genesis 15. If you have this faith, if you believe, you are welcome to the table as a picture of what is to come. But if you do not have this faith, if you do not believe, I ask that you remain in your seat because the curse of the covenant has not been taken from you yet. And thus, you cannot take part in that which is not yours. But turn today. Do work with the Father today. Cry out to God in an unbelieving slash believing faith and call out for this. Don't leave today without knowing for sure. Because you can. 
And if you are here but you doubt, but you have the same doubt that Abram just had, just know that non-believers don't do that. Non-believers don't worry about it. Lean into your inability to fully believe and ask God for more of it. For all of us, though, here's our prayer. Father, thank you for taking my place in the curse that I may take your place in the reward. I believe. Help my unbelief. So uh, grab the elements, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them together here in a minute. Um, But just take your time. Prepare your heart to remember something like this. It is of utmost importance to remember and honor and to go to this table with gladness of heart. There will be days where we wrestle, where we do not know, where we have to fight to see the truth of Genesis 15. How are we to know? Because on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The work is finished. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. That the only thing that we brought to the table was our need for salvation. And you showed up mightily for Abram and you show up mightily for us today in this room all because of this covenant. Because on that day when Jesus took the covenant curse for all of us, there was nothing left for us to take. Life crumples us, God, and you know that. But our prayer and our heart is that we believe, help our unbelief. We know, but we want to know for sure. Will you continue to show us? Will you continue to show up? Will you continue to be there for us just like you are? Help us to believe today. We thank you and we love you. And it's all because of Jesus that we pray and we ask. Amen.